Please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 16. Yes, it's true, the day you've all been longing for is here. It's time to get back to our series in Acts and all God's people said. Or you can go, woohoo, that works too. Nice, woohoo is a synonym of, of amen, did you know? I hope you had as much fun as I did in the Gospels over Advent and Christmas looking at Jesus. But i got to tell you, I am so excited once again to pick up the now what. What do I mean by that? God Himself came in the flesh. Jesus was born a baby. And through His life and death and resurrection, we're offered salvation, eternal life together with God forever. And so now what? Now what with the time that we have left here on earth? Whether it's a day or a hundred years, a tiny amount of time in the scheme of eternity. Now what? Given God's amazing love, beautifully expressed in and through Jesus, how are we to live our lives as we too strive to bring the kingdom of God in Jesus' name to our world, just like the earliest Christians did to their world? We left off in Acts, as you recall, with the Apostolic Council in Acts 15. The year is 49 A.D. for that council. And you recall Paul and Barnabas had just gotten back from what we call Paul's first missionary journey. And they went back to their home church in Antioch of Syria, which you see on the map. Before long, several months later, perhaps, a a heated disagreement, you remember, comes up among the early Christians over whether Gentiles, that is to say non-Jews, had to be circumcised and had to follow the letter of the laws of Moses in order to be saved. The church in Jerusalem, led by James, one of Jesus' brothers, the church steps in to rule on this important and possibly divisive issue in the early church. It threatened the unity of the early church. And they decide that while Gentiles must, of course, live out loud, passionate, godly lives, they decide that neither circumcision nor any specific law of Moses, for that matter, earns Gentiles their salvation. Then Paul returns to Antioch with the decision of the council, no doubt with a huge smile on his face. And not long after that, perhaps even because of that, boy, they had to be encouraged, Paul and the church in Antioch, by the council's decision. I mean, it's really the first time, at least officially, that the head church in Jerusalem gives its official blessing to their missionary efforts among Gentiles. So not long after that, Paul and Barnabas, perhaps buoyed by this support from the home church in Jerusalem, they say, hey, let's get back out there. Let's go back to our new friends and new churches and see how everybody's doing. And so Paul's second missionary journey is born. The year is still now about late 49 A.D., or, or maybe we've turned the calendar over to early 50 A.D. It's only been about a year since they got back from the first missionary journey. And now Paul and Barnabas, refreshed, enthused, perhaps by that council's decision, they're eager to return to those earliest new church communities. Despite their eagerness, their plans right off the bat hit a snag. Paul's second missionary journey almost doesn't get off the ground. Let's pick up the story in Acts 15, verse 36, and see why. So back up from Acts 16, just a few verses. Acts 15, verse 36. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, 
Let us go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. It's interesting and telling, isn't it, that, that even in the wake of the, council, of the council's great and grand decision in Acts 15, which was intended to bring peace and harmony among all the believers, even in the wake of that great event, the very next story is this disagreement pops up between two of the best friends. Disagreements may still be a part of the Christian life. Go figure. Are you surprised? And this time, this time the disagreement isn't theological, like the issue of circumcision or obedience to the law. This time it's personal. It's a clash of personalities, a difference of opinion of who you want on the team here. Paul doesn't want John Mark, the quitter. Along is how he feels about them. Even several years after John Mark left them and Pamphylia, even several years later, Paul still is resenting John Mark a little bit, taking off. Then there's Barnabas, true to his nickname, right? The encourager. He's like, hey, come on now, Paul, give my cousin, John Mark is Barnabas's cousin, let's give John Mark a second chance. A sharp disagreement, the text says. Neither man is budging. And because neither man wants to compromise, it causes these best of friends for years, 12, 13 years at least, they decide to go their separate ways. I'm not going to camp on this portion of our story this morning, but, but let me say this. Perhaps one application here is that sometimes, at least, sometimes when personalities clash within Christian community, if people just aren't ready to reconcile yet, if it doesn't work out despite best, sometimes the better part of wisdom might be to part ways. At least for a while. And that's what Paul and Barnabas decide to do. Now, fortunately, we read later that Paul and John Mark eventually kiss and make up. But Paul's just not ready to do that yet in Acts 16. So Paul takes Silas. And they head north and west through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches there. And as we'll see in a minute, Luke, our author of Acts, he seems almost to rush Paul and Silas back to Lystra. We'll talk about why in a minute. And when we get to Lystra, we get a truly touching story of, of God's love, really, that we just sung about. Love so amazing, so divine, that demands my soul, my life, my all. It's right there in Lystra. And, and that's where I'd like to spend the rest of our time this morning, in Lystra. Pick up with me, please, the story in Acts 16, verse 1. He, that, that is Paul and Silas, he came to Derby and then to Lystra. 
where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was a Jewess and a believer, she's a Christian Jew, but whose father was a Greek. The brothers at Lystra and neighboring Iconium spoke well of him, spoke well of Timothy, not Timothy's father. Paul wanted to take him, Timothy, along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem, it's the apostolic council, for the people to obey. And so the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. These are the very words of God. Amen? Now the question that I'd like to focus on with you this morning is this, or it stems from this interesting fact. Why, why does Luke, the author of Acts, bother to tell us here that Timothy's mom is a Christian Jew and Timothy's dad is a non-believing Greek? Most commentators agree that because Luke is silent about any faith on the part of Timothy's dad, that, that Timothy's dad was neither a Jew or a Christian. If he was, Luke would have mentioned it as the reasoning. And if that's true, why tell us then that Timothy's mom was a Christian Jew and his father was a pagan or non-believing Greek? Oddly enough, part of the answer at least may be found in Deuteronomy, of all places. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, you remember, those of you who have read Deuteronomy, God tells His people, don't intermarry with the foreign nations that you're driving out. Don't intermarry with, in our language today, non-believers. And then, in Deuteronomy 23, verse 2, God adds that no one born of a forbidden marriage may enter the assembly of the Lord. At first, that might sound a bit harsh or even prejudicial, but remember... God isn't being prejudicial here against non-believers. Remember, He loves them deeply. And He wants nothing more to welcome them into His family of faith. But God, He nevertheless commands that, Listen, my kids, marriage is not the way to win someone to faith in God. God tells His people not to intermarry with non-believers because God knows what happens. He's concerned that that non-believing spouse will cause the believing spouse to turn away from God. Something that Christian marriage counselors today will tell you that happens almost all the time when a believer is yoked with an unbeliever, to put it in Corinthian language. Okay, now, time for a little Hebrew this morning. In Hebrew, someone who would be born of a forbidden union or marriage that God forbids in His law Someone born of that marriage, the children and the descendants of that forbidden marriage between a believer and a non-believer, such a person is called a mamzer. Practice your Hebrew this morning. Say mamzer. What's really cool, because this almost never happens with Greek, that word mamzer almost kind of sounds like what it means in English, right? It has something to do with your mom. Total coincidence, Okay. Almost never happens in Hebrew. So praise God that it does once in a while. It will help you remember what mamzer means. And so when Luke tells us that Timothy's mom was a Christian Jew, but his father was a pagan Greek, 
bells and whistles goes off to anyone at all in the first century who's at all familiar with Torah, and certainly the new Jewish Christians were, bells, bells and whistles go off that, whoa, Timothy is a momzer. And we say, okay, I mean, these verses typically we just read right through, right? Well, interesting detail. So we say, so what? So, so Timothy's a momzer. Okay, what difference does it make? Well, we just read of a huge difference it makes, at least within the Jewish community. God says in Deuteronomy 23, Momsers may not enter the assembly of the Lord. Say, okay, they can't go to church. <laughs> Some of us might think, cool, I hope not. No, assembly of the Lord. I mean, God's people themselves are the assembly of the Lord. Whatever building they happen to meet in or whatever they're doing, God's people assembled all the time, all those Jewish feasts, all those synagogue get-togethers. They assembled all the time in community before God. So, so being a momser meant that you were not part of the Jewish community. You were effectively excluded from your very own culture happening around you. You were an outcast in a very hard sense of the word. For Timothy, that meant he couldn't participate in synagogue. He couldn't fully participate, at least, in the feasts and festivals in Jerusalem. He was, for all intent and purposes, treated like a non-Jew, and perhaps even worse. So imagine with me Eunice. Say, who's Eunice? Timothy's mom. Her name is Eunice. Imagine with me Eunice sometime before Timothy was born. Imagine Eunice, a, a young, bubbly, bright, Jewish girl living in Lystra. And as she grows up, for whatever reason, she's tempted and she disobeys God. She gets together with a pagan Greek man and they have a son. And their son is given the Greek name Timotheos, Timotheos, excuse me, which means one who honors God fascinating name given this context of, of the God dishonoring circumstance of Timothy's birth. And who knows? Perhaps Eunice. Remember, she's Jewish. She knows Torah. Maybe on the eighth day, as the law of Moses commands, the eighth day after Timothy is born, maybe Eunice sneaks over to the synagogue after hours to, to find a Jewish rabbi in order to have Timothy circumcised according to the custom and belief of her people. Maybe she sneaks over because Timothy's father wouldn't approve. Maybe she sneaks over to, to avoid the stares from Jewish community. But perhaps she, she bundles up the little eight-day-old Timothy and takes him to be circumcised according to the law of Moses. And, and when she gets there, maybe she says something like, Rabbi, Rabbi, look, here's my son. And he's called one who honors God. Isn't he beautiful? I'm here to have him circumcised. But the rabbi, of course, would, would say to Eunice something like, Eunice, my, my dear girl, he is certainly a, a beautiful boy, but, but I am so sorry. I, I cannot circumcise your son. He's a momzer. 
So what does Eunice do? Does she slowly make her way back home that night, heartbroken perhaps, clinging to her newborn baby, her own tears splashing against Timothy's tiny face? And maybe she's thinking, oh, Timothy, I'm so sorry. What, what have I done? Maybe she begins imploring God to forgive her or at least to forgive and, and make a way for her son. Or maybe a few years later, Eunice wants to make sure Timothy grows up learning the Scriptures and learning about her God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, and, and his heritage, at least as a Jew. And so she takes Timothy to the first day of school. You remember that day? Mom dressed you up, Dad dressed you up, and your best, and you'd go to the first day of school. Parents, you remember that day? Bringing your kids. First day of school at synagogue. Only when they get there, then he's turned away. And they're told that Timothy isn't welcome there because Timothy is a momser. And we could go on, I suppose, supposing what it must have been like for Eunice and what it must have been like for Timothy. Growing up in Lystra, shunned by the Jewish side, at least, of his family. Not to mention the Greek side, who was probably suspicious of his mixed heritage, too. But the other Jewish boys and girls, at least, pointing and whispering whenever they saw, Timothy, there goes that momzer. Make sure and stay away from him. What must it have been like for Timothy to be an outsider to the whole mother's side of his family? How painful was it for Timothy to, to be excluded from the other Jewish kids' reindeer games because he was different, because he was a momser. And then, one day, not too many years later, two Jewish guys show up in Lystra, a big guy and a little guy. And they turned the whole village on its head. You remember? I wonder if Timothy was there that day near the gate. Remember, Lystra is this tiny village. If there's something big going on at the gate, what's a kid going to do? You know, life's a little dull and slow in the back country of some of these, you know, villages in the hills. I wonder if he was there, Timothy, that day. When the whole town thought that Barnabas and Paul were Zeus and Hermes. Did that boy watch? Did he pull up a stone? Did he peek up? You know, kids like to climb. I take them to Israel and I know where the kids are going to sit. They're going to find the highest stone ancient wall that's 3,000 years old. And I worry they're going to knock it over, but that's okay. They go and they perch on it. Was Timothy perched that day at the gate in Lystra? Did the boy watch his eyes as big as saucers as the Zeus priests tried to sacrifice a bull and worship them, Paul and Barnabas? Did Timothy hear Paul and Barnabas shout and protest and plead with the crowd to turn away from these false gods and turn toward the only living God? And did Timothy have to, did he have to look away? Or if Eunice was there, did, did she scurry her son away as soon as it got ugly? When some out-of-towners turned the crowd against Paul and Barnabas and 
and Paul was brutally stoned and dragged out of the city and left for dead, was he there? And maybe even if he hadn't seen the stoning, did he peek out the window and, and, and did he see Paul? Paul, Paul limped back to where he was staying after, after Paul got up. One thing's for sure, Timothy and his mom heard enough from Paul and Barnabas when they were in Lystra or, or perhaps also from some other Christians who maybe passed through that we don't know about and preached the good news. One thing's for sure, as we've just read, Timothy and his mom clearly heard enough to accept Jesus as Messiah. By the time Paul comes back in our text this morning, this time with Silas, we read that Timothy's a disciple and his mom is a believer. And now what about that day when Paul comes back to Lystra? You ever wonder what that day was like for Eunice and her momser outcast son? Paul seems to have one thing in mind as he heads off on his second missionary journey. Fresh off the painful disagreement with Barnabas. It's almost like Paul is thinking, you know what, I need to find me a disciple. Someone to train and to help equip to carry on when I'm gone. I mean, let's face it, the last time I did this swing through the... I didn't almost make it back alive. Maybe it's time to think about the future for when I'm gone. I, I wonder, I suspect it wouldn't surprise me in the least that Paul makes a beeline for Lystra. Maybe he's thinking of that group of disciples there a couple of years ago that, 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 that formed a circle around him and, and were there when he came to after the stoning and be left for, being left for dead and helped him. And I wonder if he's thinking... That's the place. I wonder if God will have a disciple, a companion, a fellow person to help. I wonder if someone will have, I wonder if someone will be there in Lystra. I've got to get me a disciple before this thing goes any further. And so Paul returns to Lystra, and he's immediately told by Christians in Luke's story, he's immediately told by Christians in Lystra and neighboring Iconium, hey, Timothy is impressive. Why do you suppose the believers in Lystra even tell Paul about Timothy? What, what an odd thing to kind of volunteer up, yeah? Hey, Paul, welcome back. Hey, this Momser Timothy is amazing. Maybe they spoke well of him. Maybe the reason maybe they knew, and Paul had asked them, or whether they knew of anyone who might be willing and able to join Paul as his disciples. Maybe the word was out, and and they can't stop talking about this Momser Timothy. I um, how I wish I could have been there the day that Paul stopped by Timothy's house. Hello, I'm Paul. You you might remember me from last time. I was the one who brought the good news of Jesus Christ to Lystra, and and I understand you believe. Say, I was wondering. Eunice, Timothy, how, how about how about it, Timothy? How'd you like to join me as my uh, disciple? I wish I could have been there that day that the moms are outcast from Lystra, the one forbidden to enter into the assembly of the Lord his whole life, was asked by a student of the great Gamaliel, no less, think the Einstein of Jewish teachers in that day, and you had the reputation of Gamaliel among the Jews. How I would have liked to have seen when Timothy the Momser was asked by none other than the Apostle Paul who had seen Jesus, had healed the town cripple in the gate, when Timothy was asked by Paul if he wanted in. 
If you remember any of uh, part of our past lessons of what it means in part to be chosen as a disciple, what must it have been, been like for Timothy looked down on and told no and you can't do it all his life when Paul said to him, Timothy, I think you can be just like me as I am like Christ Jesus. What was that like for Timothy? What do you say, Timothy? Are you in? Eunice, what do you say? Can Timothy join me? Remember, Timothy is probably less than 15 years old at this point. He's a teen here in all likelihood. You say, where do you get that? Well, 15 years later, when Paul is writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, Paul refers to Timothy as a young man. Fifteen years later, he's still a young man. Culturally, you're not a young man anymore once you hit 30. I mean, the expectation of how long you'd live in that day, like, like half of what it is, you're not a young man at 30. So you do the math. He's probably no more than 15 here in Acts 16, maybe much younger. And P.S., it's not the main focus this morning, but I can't resist. Let me just add that we have yet here another of many examples in the Bible where God uses kids to do amazing and powerful things. Never sell a kid short, church of God. And you kids sitting on the wings and in the middle, never sell yourself short. Don't you let anybody tell you that you can't. You can in Christ. God believes in you. He notices you. He knows you. And He can use you right now and wants you desperately if you only let Him. God does it all the time. Sometimes we get locked in as a church. Well, they're not ready. 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 God didn't say that for this 15-year-old outcast teen. That's who he went after. And so Paul asked the outcast teen to join him. How do you suppose that made Timothy and his mom feel? You know, I imagine somewhere in heaven, even yet today, Eunice is still weeping with joy. I'll bet if you ask her when you see her one day, Hey Eunice, tell me about the day Paul came and asked Timothy. I bet her eyes well up with tears as she remembers the day that her mom's her son was called by Paul, called by God really, to play a huge and important role in the church. Parents out there, can, can words describe how you feel when someone gives a needed helping hand to your struggling son or daughter? Oh, and I would have liked to have seen Timothy leaving Lystra that day with Paul and Silas. Maybe he's so excited he can't stand it. You know, like running around in circles around Paul, taking his water bottle and throwing it up in the air. So where are we going? Where are we going? Where are we going? Where are we going? Are we there yet? <laughs> no, we're still in the gate. Ah, that kind of youthful enthusiasm and passion. Be careful, Church of God. You squeeze them out into their own building and you don't... We need that. And maybe for the first time in his life, Maybe Timothy's holding his head a little bit higher. Maybe he's doing what I like to call the disciple strut. As he walks one last time through his condemning Jewish community, following the man. And that would be the Apostle Paul. That's my teacher. 
Now, he, he might have limped a little bit doing the strut because he had just been circumcised. Ouch. But you know what? He had to be... Oh, my goodness. Those of you who have been or any experience, people who have been pressed down and told they're worthless... I work with those kids all the time. Oh, what a day for Timothy. The story's really, in part at least, isn't it? The story of Jesus and Zacchaeus all over again. Jesus sees that Zacchaeus has been kicked to the curb as an unclean sinner by the community, and Jesus notices him and restores him. Paul sees Timothy, this cast-aside momser, and he reaches out to him in love. Do we reach out to the outcasts of our day in love or disdain? Yes, Timothy was a momser. I wonder whether that's part of the reason even why Paul chose him. You say, what do you mean? Timothy, despite incredible odds against it, Timothy earns the respect of the brothers in Lystra. At this time in the early church, vast majority, some say 80-90% Jewish Christians. He earns their respect. You know how impossible it would be for a momser to earn the respect of a Jewish person? He couldn't study the Scriptures in synagogue, but somehow, someway, this kid found a way to do it anyway. Oh, what did that take? What was Timothy like? What about Eunice? Maybe turned away and shunned. Where did he, Timothy, in all likelihood, learn from? It couldn't be from his Jewish community. It certainly wasn't from his Jewish father, who took it upon herself, maybe as a penance even for her sin, and made sure that her son... New and passionately followed God. Can we praise God for Eunice and his grandmother Lois? When the going got tough, Timothy got going. He excelled despite persecution and, and second class status in the community and, and people looking down on him because he was a momser. Is there much doubt at all that God prepared Timothy in this way for what was ahead? And did Paul see in Timothy someone, you know what, this momser, this kid's not going to blink in the face of persecution and ridicule. Someone who even at a young age, this kid's already battle-tested. It's interesting, isn't it, that right after Paul refuses to accept John Mark along because he quit, Paul chooses Timothy, a momser who didn't quit. And Acts places these two stories right on top of each other. Right after Paul says no to John Mark the quitter, he says yes to Timothy, the persevering momser. I wonder if those two stories are right after uh, one another, if that's only coincidence. And maybe Paul saw also in this momser someone who would have a deep love and empathy for the outsider, for the down and out, for, for those the world called expendable or useless or below average. I mean, who better than a momser to compassionately empathize with the poor and the hurting and the struggling due to life's tough circumstances? Timothy faced circumstances, tough ones, every day of his young life. And Timothy goes along as Paul, as a living example to everyone of someone who got rescued from the world's trash heap. How many discouraged people, do you suppose, were encouraged when Timothy gave his testimony? Timothy was just like so many of the hurting victims of the world's way. 
had found their way finally to salvation and peace and love in Christ Jesus. Just something about those momsers who have to fight through adversity. And speaking of momsers, can anyone think of another momser in the Bible that God used in amazing and powerful ways? Anyone else come to mind? Let me ask it this way. Anyone else come to mind who the Jewish community at least might suspect or consider a momser due to some squirrely questions surrounding his birth? Yeah, I hear his name. Let me ask you the question this way. What if I was a teenage girl? I know that's a stretch. I can do teenage girl, though. It's like this. As close as I'm going to get. What if I'm a teenage girl, and I come before you right here in this place, before my religious community and religious family, you guys, and I say something like, you know, the following to you. Good morning. As you can see, I'm pregnant. But I want you to know that I never slept with anyone. I haven't been with anyone ever. And the reason I'm pregnant is because God just made it happen. You see, there was this angel. Oh my goodness, poor Mary. Can you imagine what that conversation or one like it looked like with her religious community? With her parents? Come on, parents, be honest. Would you believe Mary if she were your daughter and she trotted out the angel story to explain her premarital pregnancy? Oh, okay. Praise God. Not in a million years. Absent God's intervention and conviction, the Bible tells us God does one of the greatest kindnesses could possibly do to Mary. He gives that conviction to Joseph. But what about Mary's family and community? Don't you think there had to be a lot of, yeah, right, going on behind Mary's back, if not right to her face? Sometimes people ask, what in the world is Joseph doing, making his poor, almost pregnant wife traveling all the way to Bethlehem when she's about to give birth? What an inconsiderate man. Maybe it's more than complying with the Roman census or going to celebrate Sukkot. Maybe it's also a loving, compassionate husband who wants to give Mary a break from all of the condescending, unbelieving, accusatory stares around her. Maybe that also at least compels Joseph to get her out of there, to take his young bride away from the condemning eyes of staunchly conservative Nazareth so she can at least have her baby in peaceful anonymity somewhere else, anywhere else. My point's this. Did, did some in the religious community perhaps view Jesus as a momser? Did any of his detractors take a very cynical, unbelieving view of his birth, uh, assuming either that Joseph and Mary had slept together before they were married, or, or maybe that Mary had slept with another man and they're just kind of covering it up? In either case, a forbidden union, according to Deuteronomy. There is biblical evidence. We certainly don't have time to look at it all this morning, but there is biblical evidence that Jesus, some in Jesus' day at least viewed him as a momser. In John 8, Jesus is suggesting to a group of Jews that you are not truly children of Abraham because you don't want what Abraham wanted. You want to kill me, and that's not what Abraham would want. And they grow frustrated with Jesus, and they finally have this curious voice at the end of this discussion with Jesus. 
And they shoot back at Jesus, we're not the illegitimate children here. The only father we have is God himself. Now, some commentators suggest, you know, best explanation of what they mean there. They're taunting Jesus over the unbelieving story of his birth. Unbelievable story of his birth. And, and Jesus grew up in Nazareth. And as he grew up, did the other kids tease him about it? Kids don't do that. Hey, Jesus, your mom see any more angels lately? <laughs> Think the other kids taunted Jesus with moms or moms or moms or. Kids don't do that. Adults do, but kids don't. <laughs> So can God use people the world views as momsers, outsiders? Well, Jesus and Timothy are two pretty impressive examples. Two main applications, and I'll try to be quick. First, God's love. <laughs> you know, if you ever feel, if you are right now or you've ever been, if you, if you ever feel like the world's against you, you're kicked to the curb, nobody notices, nobody understands you. Nobody. Let me tell you something. God notices. He notices this kid out in the boondocks of Lystra. <laughs> and God relentlessly turns to those kids who somehow find a way to keep trusting in Him despite having no reason. Ah, you. God's love is so amazing. He loves the ones that the world doesn't. Turns the world's entire power structure upside down all the time. Second, who else can God use that the world sees as a momser or an outsider? What about you and me? Aren't we also momsers? Something in the Bible about us being in the world but not really of it. Something in the Bible about us ultimately being citizens of heaven rather than really any nation. Now many of you might say, wait a minute, that's a stretch. I'm not a momser. Both my parents were believers and they were married when they had me. Okay, maybe we're not all technically momsers, but, but is there nevertheless a sense that all of us who stand up for Jesus Christ are are like momsers in our culture, regardless of the faith of our parents or ancestors? I mean, the world is increasingly viewing us as outsiders, isn't it? As someone who doesn't belong. And we feel that prejudice against us, don't we? We feel it politically. We feel it morally. We feel it in our relationships with non-believers. We even feel it sometimes in our relationships with other believers who seemed threatened when we try and deepen our commitment. Who in here this morning has not, at some point in your life, made to feel about this big, made to, be, made, made to be, be, feel foolish or stupid or outdated or, or narrow-minded or irrelevant or legalistic or holier than thou? How many of you have ever been made to feel that way simply because you love Jesus and you're trying to follow Him with everything you've got? Does that ever make you feel like an outsider in your communities, Christian or otherwise? Timothy and even Jesus felt that from their communities and culture as well. You don't belong here. You are not like us. And yet they persevered and continued to follow God with all they had, and God honored that. 
My question for us today, and then I'll let you go. Will we too? Will we too? Or will we retreat and hide behind church pews? Or hide in our houses? Will we just give up and, and, and do it the world's way? How tempting it must have been for Timothy to go the way of his non-believing dad and become a flaming pagan Greek. Seriously. I mean, especially when his mother's Jewish community rejected him. It's truly an amazing testimony, probably for Eunice mostly, but for Timothy too, that Timothy didn't do that. He hung in there with God until the day Paul asked him to join him. Jesus is asking each one of us here today to join him too. Whether you know Him today as your personal Lord and Savior yet or not, wherever you are in your faith walk, He's asking each of us, wherever we are in our faith, to take another step in deepening our commitment. It's ironic, really, that someone like Timothy may have had an easier time leaving it all behind and saying yes to God than many, if not most of us here today, me included. So why do I say that? Timothy knew he had nothing to lose. He'd been rejected his, own li- his whole life, only to be accepted by Jesus through Paul. Do we know that we have nothing to lose? Do we believe that we have nothing to lose? Or do you, like me, sometimes are tempted constantly hedge at the call of Jesus to join all the way with Him? Because it feels like we're going to lose too much. We'd rather be accepted by the world. We'd rather be a little bit more comfortable. We'd re- Paul comes to Lystra and calls out to Timothy, Want to follow me? And Timothy says, Are you kidding me? Yes, of course. When do we start? Let's go. Today, Jesus comes to us wherever we are. He comes to you wherever you are. And He calls out to you, Do you want to follow me? And do we often answer, well, maybe. Are you hesitating today to respond fully to God's call? Why? If you are, ask yourself why. I'd be curious to know why. Timothy responded eagerly. He sold out, even when those around him looked down on him. And God used him to help transform his world in the name of Jesus. God invites us to respond with that same eagerness, to sell out for the gospel of Jesus Christ. He wants to use us, too, to transform our world today. And my question, Jesus' question, God's question, will you sell out? and follow Jesus. Will you? He leaves it to you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for for being a God who relentlessly loves and who notices lost sheep in trees and momsers who stay at home to avoid public ridicule. Thank you for being there with them and with us too. Every bit, Momsers, Father, who sometimes shy away and, and hurt because of the stones thrown at us when, when all we're trying to do 
is to love you with all our heart, all our soul, and all our might. Thank you for being a God who notices us in that pain and who comes running and looks us in the eyes and says, Take heart. I believe in you. I believe you can be just like me. Will you follow me? Will you sell out? Oh, Father, whatever it is that causes us to hesitate in responding to that kind of love that indeed demands my soul, my life, my all, whatever that is, Lord, take it out of the way. Give us this eagerness to respond. Are you kidding me? Just like Timothy. I'll follow you. Let's go. Where are we going and when will we get there? I don't care what it costs. Let's go. Oh, Father, would you use us in that way? Would you use us in that way to reach the world for Jesus Christ? And it's in his matchless name that we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. I know we've gone long. My apologies. If you have time, please take time to bless our brother Davison and his family and send them on their way. If you'd like someone to pray with you, there will be folks up here eager to do that too. God bless you. Have a great week.